If you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to continue going through our series on the, he, the heroes of faith in he, Hebrews 11. And, and we're going to go back and revisit Abraham again this morning and then possibly do that again next week. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, we shared the story of Abraham's faith as it was recorded in Hebrews 11. And, and in that message, we saw how each stage of Abraham's faith was kind of spelled out here. Uh, each stage was kind of introduced by the words, by faith. Verse 8 says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would rather later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Verse 9 says, By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac, Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Skipping down to verse 11, it says, By faith Abraham, even though he was past the age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And verse 17, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. So we saw four tests of Abraham's faith here in this passage. And each one, I believe, grows in intensity. When you pass the one, you're ready for the next one. We saw first his faith to set out on a risky venture with God uh, into the unknown. Uh, Then we saw Abraham's faith to continue to trust God despite a lifetime of unrealized expectations. And then we see Abraham's faith to believe God for the impossible. And finally, we see Abraham's faith to surrender to God the thing he cherished most in life, his son. And this morning, I want to go back to this passage, and I want to look at the comments the author of Hebrews makes about Abraham and his descendants living without seeing the fulfillment of the promises they've been given. And so my text for this morning is just kind of something where they insert these comments and it's Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. And as I've mentioned before here, this is a very special portion of Scripture for me because when I was beginning my ministry 42 years ago, um, I chose this passage as my life verse passage, life verses. And so it's a very special portion of Scripture to me. Follow with me as I read. Verse 13, it says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking about the country they left, they would have had opportunity to return Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. Now, the book of Hebrews describes faith in the first verse of Hebrews 11 as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And we talked about how what we hope for is future-oriented. It believes what God promises is going to happen. 
Let me, let me just say here that, that, that faith, when we talk about faith, faith in and of itself is not just a spiritual reality. Faith is not only directed toward God. We have faith in all kinds of things in life. Dallas Willard says this. He says, faith is not a mystery. We experience it day in and day out. In its most basic aspect, faith is simply reliance on something in both attitude and action. It may or may not involve reliance on God. And to illustrate this, he's, he says, you know, I have, he says this, he says, I have faith in my car, <laughs> even though I'm not driving it at the moment. This frees me from worry about, worrying about how I'm going to get home later. If I don't have faith in my car, then I'm probably going to have trouble concentrating today because I don't know if I'm going to get home. <laughs> I'd probably stop and give someone a call to see if they could pick me up if I didn't have faith in my car. He says, my attitude, which is my concern to get home, my desire to go home, would affect my actions making a call for help. So then, he says, faith is reliance or trust and confidence related, revealed in attitude and action. Do you realize that our worry speaks volumes about our lack of confidence in God. Most of us uh, don't even give our car's trustworthiness a second thought. Maybe some of us here should. Uh, but most of us don't even give it a second thought. But if we're honest, we'd have to admit we worry a lot about whether or not God's going to take care of us. But I'd like to suggest that we can be more sure that God's going to fulfill his promises than that our car is going to get us home after the service. Actually, when we, we anchor our trust in earthly things, and they become the ultimate things that we trust, we often end up disappointed. Paul Tripp puts it this way. He says, we live in a disappointing world. Admit it. <laughs> Many of your hopes for this life have been disappointed. He said, maybe your job didn't turn out the way you wanted it to be. Maybe you didn't get the, the expected raise you thought you were going to get or the promotion you thought you were going to get. Maybe the house, the perfect home that you bought, <laughs> turned out to be less than perfect. Maybe you started having plumbing issues or, or maybe you found out that the commute you thought wouldn't be that big is taking up more time in your day than you thought it would. And you have days in which you feel distant from your spouse. When you're hurt by what the other person said or did. Or, or, or when your marriage took more work than you thought it would. Your church has disappointed you too. Now he's not talking about our church. Our church would never do that. But probably the church he went to did. So Sometimes you're not too excited about another Sunday morning. That would never happen here. And you're tired of the same old religious routine and you wonder if you're alone in your boredom. Your possessions have disappointed you as well. That living room set you thought was so neat is now older and it, it seems outdated. And your new car has become a used car and, and, and you want to get rid of it before it becomes an unpredictable car. And maybe you're disappointed with you. <laughs> 
In your honest moment, you look back on your life with loads of regret, thinking, oh, I wish I had done this differently, or I wish I had done this differently. Maybe you are, were a less attentive, uh, a less attentive father who was taking time with your kids, or maybe you were a more legalistic mother than you thought you were going to be, and, and on and on it goes. Maybe you're, you're disillusioned with where you're at physically. Maybe you're only in your 40s and you're already having some health issues. Here's one that you probably can't relate to, but maybe your government lets you down. Maybe your national leaders were more uh, intent on protecting their own personal political interests than taking care of their constituents. And, and on and on it goes. And, and, and all the things that you put your hope in, they, at some point in life, they, they start to let you down. You're trusting these things. And so what do you do when the things you're trusting let you down? You look for something bigger and better, right? If your marriage lets you down, you look for a better marriage. And if your job lets you down, you look for a better job. And if your, your new house lets you down, you look for even a newer house. And, and on and on it goes. And pretty soon they're the things that are letting you down. And you careen from one dashed hope to another. <laughs> you become hopeful again only to be disappointed down the road. And Paul Tripp says, we are hope junkies. We want hope, we refuse to live without it, but at the same time we put our hope in places that can't give us lasting hope, and this only leads to one place, disappointment and ultimately hopelessness. What, what he's saying here is that in this broken world, the things we put our hope in don't always deliver. And only God and his promises are completely trustworthy. And because we know him, we trust him, even when we don't see things working out the way we wish they would. So if faith is what we hope for, referring to the future, it's also things not seen, referring to what God's doing right now, out of sight, behind the scenes. In other words, we, we, have, we, we, we trust God's involvement in our world, carrying out his plan, bringing it to his desired end. Whether it seems that way in our life or not. But in our text this morning, we see people who are so sure of God's involvement in their lives, and they're so sure that He is a promise keeping God that they trust Him completely, even though they don't see the fulfillment of the promises. And in this passage, we see them still believing at the point of their death. (laughs) The author of Hebrews says in verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They haven't, but it's faith because they still haven't seen the full fulfillment of the promises. It says they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. I'm going to say three things about these people's faith in this, pas- in, in this message. And first of all, what we've been talking about already, but I'm going to continue a little bit on that, is they trusted God in spite of unfulfilled promises. When the author says, all these people, he's, 
He's likely referring here to the people who were recipients of the promise God made to Abraham. These were the people who were given a promise. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the people just mentioned back in verse 9, where he says, By faith he made his homeland, Abraham, in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. So I think this is referring back to the people who were heirs of this promise, And so we see here how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and a little later Joseph is going to be included, continued to exercise faith even though they never saw all the God's promises come true. All these people, were told, died in their faith without receiving the promises. Now you say, wait a minute. Didn't Abraham make it to the promised land? And didn't Sarah eventually have a promised child? And the answer is yes, but what they experienced was just a foretaste, a shadow of the things that were promised. Abraham and Sarah didn't receive the full promise, just a down payment. They had one child. The promise for Abraham was that his descendants, in verse 12, would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And as they looked at their one child, I don't think they, they... experienced the fullness of that promise. They got the foretaste of it. This is what the promise is going to come through. Abraham and Sarah received Isaac, but they died with two heirs, Isaac and his son Jacob, hardly innumerable nation. (laughs) Isaac owned a few wells plus some grazing land for his flocks, but he still lived in a tent and it was not in any way inheriting the land he was on, which was promised. He was more like a visitor. Jacob lived with and died with about 70 descendants, so the, 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 the family's beginning to multiply. They formed the 12 tribes, but they didn't even get to stay in the promised land. They were forced to move back to the land of Egypt because of a famine. So the patriarchs had a taste of the fulfillment of the promise, but it was only a taste. They didn't receive the promised land. They just dwelt there as aliens and strangers, as tent dwellers in the land. And to some of us, this story seems like a tragedy. Abraham left everything in pursuit of God because he promised him a land and promised that he would form a nation through him. And he and his grandson, his son and his grandson spent their whole lives waiting for things that they were promised, longing to have a home of their own in the land that was promised them. They trusted God, believed his promises, left all they had dear to follow him, and yet they died before the promises became completely fulfilled. A lifetime of unrealized expectations. What a sad story. I mean, why even have faith if what you're promised doesn't come true? But the reason we think that way is because we're focused only on this present life. We live as though what happens in our time on earth is all that really matters. We don't live life with an eternal perspective. 
You know, didn't Paul tell us, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things? And this directly confronts the view that's so prevalent in our time that Christianity mainly offers temporal benefits. (laughs) We're told God wants you to have a good life. He wants to give you the health you want, the wealth you want, the vacations you want, the house you want, the family you want. And people today are told if you trust Jesus, you're going to get ahead at work. You're going to be a successful parent. You'll have less stress and you'll lose weight. Now, now, it's true that, that Christianity does make a big impact on our present life. It does affect us here and now. We have Christ in the yoke with us. We live Christ's life with Christ. But it's easy to forget that to be a Christian means to be a pilgrim in this world, not a settler. It promises that we will be rejected by the world because of our allegiance to Christ. If this world is our home, we're going to be sadly disappointed. The more we pursue Christ, the less this world's going to feel like our home. It seems that a lot of our blessings are more spiritual than material. To be a Christian more often than not means to be an outsider. It means to share in Christ's sufferings in some way. The Christian life, it's true, means peace with God, but it also means war with the flesh, the world, and the devil. (laughs) The primary blessings of Christianity don't lie in this lifetime, but in the life to come in heaven. And these people, we're told in this passage, died in faith. That is, they continued to believe God right up to their last breath. And Abraham and his offspring would eventually receive the promises of uncountable descendants. The land would be given to them. But it wouldn't all happen in their lifetime. Their faith, however, sustained them, for they still believed God would honor his word and eventually fulfill the promises that he had made to them. Actually, these people were living for what would be theirs on the other side. (laughs) They put their hope in a better country, a country that was yet to come. They admitted we're told in verse 13 that they were strangers and aliens on earth. (laughs) And it says in verse 14, the people who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. They're seeking the fulfillment of their promises beyond the boundaries of this world. Biblical faith considers this world and what it has to offer, and then it considers the promises of God and what they offer And faith wants what God has to offer more than what this world has to offer. Biblical faith does. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not know what God was doing. God had not told them how or when these promises would be fulfilled. God had only given them promises, and that was all. But apparently, that was enough. John MacArthur explains it this way. He says, they had a sampling of the promised land. They walked on it, pastured their flocks, and raised their children on it. But they were not impatient to possess it. It was enough to possess it from a distance because their primary concern was for a better country, a heavenly one. He continues, in the meantime, they were quite happy to be strangers and exiles on earth. 
He said, in the ancient world, strangers were often regarded with hatred and suspicion and contempt. They had few rights, even by the standards of that day. They weren't only strangers, they were also exiles, pilgrims, or sojourners. They were refugees in the promised land. But these faithful patriarchs were just passing through Canaan to a better place, and they did not mind. And MacArthur concludes by saying this. He says, the most positive thing about our faith is not what we can see or hold or measure, but the promise that one day we will be together forever with the Lord. Christians whose faith does not extend to heaven will have their eyes on things of the world and will wonder why they're not happier in the Lord. (laughs) Nothing in this life, including God's most abundant earthly blessings, will give a believer the satisfaction and joy that come with absolute assurance of future glory. The Christian wants God's country. They want what God has to offer. They want to be with God. They want it so much that they're content to be resident aliens here. They really believe that they're just passing through this world on their way to their homeland. And the question for us is, where have we centered our affections? (laughs) In the things of this life or the things of the coming world? Stephen Cole, Pastor Stephen Cole shared that a pastor was talking to three young boys in his church, and he said to them, he says, do you want to go to heaven? And one of the boys spoke up right away, not me. And I don't want to. And the pastor was surprised, and he says, you don't want to go to heaven when you die? And he says, oh, you didn't say when I die. He says, I thought you meant right now. <laughs> and Cole continues, he says, you know, this is kind of a picture of who we are. Most of us probably share that boy's feeling about heaven someday it'll be nice to go there but at the moment we're really not that interested we're too invested in things right here (laughs) how real is it to you you know whether or not a person is really living for another world is seen more in how they live than just what they say their choices show more often than not, that they're more interested in storing up treasures here than in heaven. You know, too often our focus is more on what Christ can do for us here and now than what we will have with him forever. Heaven's nice, but it's an interruption to where our real life is. (laughs) And it doesn't govern how we live day by day. But it should. There there was um, Richard Phillips in his commentary shares an excerpt out of one of the early, real early church Christian documents, the epistle to Dionetus. And in it, he describes Christians... This way, this Christians of his time, this way. He says, the Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They don't inhabit separate cities of their own or speak in a strange dialect or have some outlandish way of life. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in. 
And yet there's something extraordinary about them, something different about them. They live in their own countries as though they're just passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under the disabilities of being aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, whether it may, whatever it may be, is a foreign country to them. Like others, they marry and have children, but they don't expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they're citizens of heaven. You know, is that what they'd say about us today? <laughs> Would it be evident that, that we're living for another city? Where your heart is, that's where your true home is. And most of us, if we were honest, would have to admit that this world and what it has to offer is what our hearts really are centered on. The world has an incredible gravitational pull on us, and for many of us, this world is more attractive than the promise of heaven. But the promises of a God are not mainly for this world. Some of them are for this world, but not mainly. There's, there's even bigger and better promises for what is coming. And as Christians, we may live in this world, but the world will not be our home. Our true home is on the other side. We long for a heavenly home. We long with such intensity that it makes us dissatisfied with this world. Something bigger than your health or success or wealth is in focus. The author of Hebrews says, in verse 15, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to, re to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. If they wanted to opt for personal comfort, they could. They had complete freedom to go back. <laughs> but they were seeking a better country, and they didn't want to return to their old self-centered way of living. People, I don't know about you, but I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Are you with me? My treasure's in heaven, my heart's in heaven, and there's no going back for me. The third point here is that Their longing for this better country made God proud to be their God. Verse 16 says, They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. This, to me, is the most amazing part of this passage. Here we're told that because of their desire, their longing for the country God had prepared for them, that he is not ashamed of them. <laughs> Because of where they have centered their hearts, God is not ashamed of them. God, at times, shows pride in his people. God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, and he said, You know who I am? I'm the God of your father, Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> Even though these men were far from perfect, God was pleased to be identified with them. 
In fact, the biblical scholar F.F. Bruce points out that the one he singles out the most in the Old Testament of the three is Jacob, and Jacob was the one who was the least exemplary of the three. (laughs) God's not ashamed. John Piper puts it this way. When I read this, it just really touched me. So I'm going to share some of his thoughts here. He says this. God is not ashamed. That's a very striking phrase. There's nothing like it that I know of anywhere else in the Bible. Connecting shame with God and saying, God might be ashamed to do something, but he's not ashamed of this. He's not ashamed to be called our God. Piper continues. I really want God to be able to say that of me. I'm not ashamed to be called John Piper's God. Then he quickly adds, if he were to say the opposite, I am ashamed to be called John Piper's God, then he would not be my God at all because he would not do anything that is shameful to him. God is not ashamed to be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? John Piper says, because they desire a city. This verse says they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. God has made a city for them. They desire it. And that's that's why he's not ashamed to be called their God. He goes on and says, now think about this for a moment. If you want God to be unashamed of being your God, what do you have to do? And when when he asks that kind of question the wheels start turning for me and I start wrestling with that and it kind of overwhelms me. You know, what can I, a mere mortal, do that God's going to recognize? What can I do that will win God's approval? Every act I perform is tainted with sin. Anything God wants, he can have. What can I give him that he doesn't have? He's really hard to shop for. (laughs) At Christmas time, I never know what to get him. What do I have to offer him? And so Piper asked, what do we need to do? Do we need to do some great exploit that he'll be proud of? Do we need some high moral achievement that will impress him? He says the answer is stunning. He gives it here. The answer is we are to desire him. (laughs) Desire the city he's made for you. Desire the city of God over the city of this earth. Desire heaven over earth. Desire God over everything. He says, this is what faith is on the inside. Faith desires God. In the city God makes for his people more than it desires anything on earth. Faith means desiring God. But he says, think a little bit more. What's the opposite of being ashamed? If God were to state it positively, how would he say it? I'm not ashamed to be called your God. Rather, I am what? I'm proud, he says. Proud or I'm pleased to be called your God. And why would God be proud to be called the God of someone who desires him in his city over the the city of the world? Because desiring God honors God. When you desire someone, you call attention to their worth. Desiring is no great achievement on our part. No one brags about getting hungry, especially for the best food in the world. And so nobody will brag about desiring God who's more desirable than anything else in the universe. Desiring God doesn't call attention to our value. It calls attention to God's value. 
And Piper goes on and talks about the fact that inwardly faith is desiring God. Remember, Dallas Willard said it's both an attitude and an action, so the the attitude is one of desire. (laughs) And then outwardly, faith is obeying him. That's the actions in our lives that flow out of the desires we have. When our desires are really centered on God, then the actions come. And the point here is that true faith always transforms you. It will change your life. True faith does not leave you the same. It won't leave you with the same old ambitions, the same old longings, the same old values. It, ha- it shows itself in your willingness to live for bigger, bigger purposes than just your own happiness. It makes you want to be part of a story that's bigger than your own life. <laughs> Loving God's country will cause you to live a life that is out of sync with the world's values. It, it, it acts itself out in your willingness to commit to God's values regardless of what they are. Perhaps his command for you to stay married or to remain single or to stay in a job or to leave a job or to get baptized or not get baptized or to speak up for Christ at work or not speak, <laughs> to refuse to compromise your standards of honesty, to confront a person in sin, to venture to a new location, to be a missionary. All these things, if God is calling us to do them, become priority number one for us because we desire him. <laughs> Do you desire God this way? His promise is more than anything. Do you believe that he will honor your faith and obedience by being unashamed to be called your God? Do you believe that he'll use all of his wisdom and power and love to turn the path of obedience in your life into a path of joy? Those are the questions that this passage brings to us. Do you desire him like that? Will you trust him that much? The word of God to you is God is worthy and God is able. Let's pray. Father, help us to be pilgrims moving toward a destination. Help us to love your kingdom more than anything else. Help us to seek your kingdom and allow you to provide the needs we have for everyday life, but to seek your kingdom first above all else. Lord, when hopes don't materialize, help us to keep the bigger perspective in focus, the perspective that you're in control of it all. And what we really want is what you want for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.